Hello, and welcome back to the Real Professional Podcast. You are joining us in the midst of our Dread X Collection collection, the collection of episodes about the Dread X Collection. Uh, this is going to be a 10-part series where we interview all the devs from the Dread X Collection. What is the Dread X Collection, you're asking yourself? Of course, it's the thing you've seen all over Twitter, and it's the thing at the top of the Steam charts, depending on uh, when you're listening to this. I can't believe it's been on the top of the Steam charts for seven straight years in a row. That's it's really crazy. Uh, if only we knew when we were starting this brave endeavor just exactly how rich we'd all be by the end of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Dread X Collection, uh, if you aren't aware... It is a collection of 10 indie games, uh, all styled after PT. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that they're all spooky hallway games? No, not all spooky hallway games. There's enough spooky hallway games out, out there, although we do have one or two spooky hallway games in the bunch. It's all about variety. Uh, we're taking PT in concept, not in content. So the idea of PT was to create a playable teaser for Silent Hills. So we're creating playable teasers for all of our dream projects. So uh, we reached out to 10 very talented, very diverse indie devs said, hey, make an indie horror game of a project that you would love to see turned into like a full game. What, what, what's the world you want to create? And all 10 devs says, said, that sounds like the best idea ever. I 100% want to be involved. Ted, where have you been all my life? Uh, you're amazing and wonderful. And uh, everyone, everyone's been submitting their games. Uh, by the time this goes live, we might have the Steam page ready. See, the the problem is, guys, when you have such a talented group of people and it all comes together so quickly, uh, sometimes uh, you, you forget that the rest of the world moves a little bit slower. So that's all getting made. Uh, we should have the trailer ready by the time this goes live. A lot of stuff. Um, all of that's going to be in the description below. So 10 indie games, 10 developers. They all made them over seven days. They had a week to make this. And it's only going to be seven bucks. And the best part is that two of those dollars, two of those seven dollars, they're going to Doctors Without Borders uh, in proportion to like. So if it like goes on sale for half off, um, we're not like literally going to be like losing money. So, you know, proportional to the, the original cost. But hey, it's all for good cause. So um, if you love people being alive and you hate sickness, uh, buy the Sick. Dreadx collection. So uh, anyways, without further ado, uh, we got our episode today is with uh, David Shemansky. You might know him uh, from the game that he made, uh, Fingerbones, and also yes. Uh, yes, of Over the Moon, I think, Under the Moon, something about the moon? Sure, why not? Uh, the Moon Sliver. The Moon Sliver, uh, and also One a little... One of the worst titles I've ever done, because everyone thinks it's The Moon Silver, because of course <laughs> they would think it's The Moon Silver, I am an idiot. <laughs> but uh, he was also known for making uh, a little indie game called Dusk. So, yeah, not uh, without, many people played that one. No, that one's real, real. He's, I'm throwing him a, fo a bone by, you know, giving him this opportunity here. But without further ado, DJ, drop that sick beat. You won't be able to hear the beat because we edited it later. Okay. I know, right? Well, it'll all sound great when it comes together. Actually, all of the uh, music for these episodes, we're using uh, 
John of the Shred from the Scythe Dev team are using his uh, music library. I don't know if you've listened to his stuff. It's really good. I haven't yet. Well, I've heard it in the, the Scythe games, I think. Mm-hmm. Probably. I assume it's his stuff in the Scythe games. Yep, it's he, all his uh, stuff. He sent me a file with uh, three MP3s and then conservative estimate 500 uh, AU files, which I don't know how to convert. But <laughs> once I do, I'm going to listen to his whole library. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we're we're getting him to do the music for the trailer and stuff. He's like really blown up now. He's got music that's getting being featured in uh, WWE and oh, like wow. sports events. Yeah, and the the thing is, is that he just got those contracts signed to get it featured, and then the world ended. So he's like fucked right now. Yeah, that's oh, that sucks. Yeah, it does. Um, but I'm I'm I got to play his game Carthank, which is the site dev team. What have you played it yet? I haven't played any of the other ones yet. Um, yeah, I'm you've been in your own too bench. soon. Yeah, and then um, I've been busy with other stuff since I I finished that. So yeah, no, I feel you. Um, Dave's like, yeah. oh, you need to play this demo that I've been asking you to play for weeks. I'm like, all right, fine. I guess <laughs> I'll do that. And by Dave, you mean uh, Dave from New Blood, not yeah, Dave Oshry. Yeah, I don't know if you're crazy and you're like the oh, oh yeah, I know. There's well, there's some people who still like believe that we're the same person just pretending to be two people which i don't know how you believe that because dave and i could not be more different but yeah you've got like a like a like kids and a family and i cannot imagine two kids and a wife and (laughs) yeah he doesn't very much so yeah i can't imagine he would either want that or would have that correct yeah (laughs) he seems like a fun guy though i'd like i definitely would want to party with him how oh, old yeah. are your kids? Have you let them play Dusk? Um, my oldest is almost three, and um, my youngest is almost two months. Or no, over two months now. Oh, mazel tov. Yeah, thank you. Um, the, the, my oldest one has seen Dusk. She actually, I, I did a full playthrough of the, the Pony Factory with her, and she loved it. <laughs> she Aww. thinks monsters are, are great. She, she loves them. <laughs> Nice. No, that's the thing. My my, my uh, niece, there we go. That's the sister's child. Uh, she loves monsters and stuff. She's really into all the spooky, scary stuff. She's like seven. And so she really likes, but there's like all these, there's these shows now that are kind of tailored towards that. There was the, what is that one with the, the girl monsters, the little girl monsters? Jesse, which is that show? Which cool show? School. Cool, cool school. High. Monster Something High? Like that. Is that the one? Is it Monster High? I don't know. I, she's not quite old enough for watching those, so I'm not into the. Uh, yes, it's Monster the, High. That, That's okay, really yeah, yeah. My yeah, she, so my cousin really likes that, and I I think it's great. I I think that um it's best to let kids figure out what they like themselves earlier rather than telling them you have to play with this or that. You know, if boys can if boys can play with uh, dolls, then girls should be able to play with little Frankenstein dolls. Yeah. Well, Lav- Lavender, that's my oldest, she loves um, trucks and cars, but also loves makeup. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love trucks and cars? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that like the old uh, stereotypes of this is, I, I, honestly, we're living in like a post-stereotype world, it seems. Like, I remember when I was growing up, um, so I'm 30, um, but when I was in high school, it was kind of those barriers were breaking down, but they weren't broken down 
yet. You know, it was like the anime gaming club was still mostly dudes. Maybe one or two girls were coming in, but now you look at it and it's, it's pretty even landscape. Mm. And, um, there was some kind of profound point I had, but I forgot. This is the story of my life. Um, yeah, something like that. But yeah, those those kind of uh, I don't know. I, I I always loved horror as kind of a, a space where um, like uh, it, it's 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 kind of like uh, I'm I'm in, in, in enveloping myself in the thing my parents told me was dangerous. Oh, yeah. right. <clears throat> so um, real quick uh. We should probably talk about you for a second because we've been just bullshitting now for um, the first ten minutes of this podcast. Uh, you um, are uh, you're Mr. David over here. Why don't yes. you give us uh, a quick rundown of your your history of game design? Okay, well, um, I started making games when I was young because I really, really, really loved um, Mist. I was super into Mist. And, um, nerd, nerd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> my oh, entire life so far has been. Look at this weirdo um, playing video games. Yeah. Got a life. <laughs> I know. It's like, I'm supposed to just argue about them on the internet. I'm not supposed to actually play them. Like, who does oh, that? Oh, God. We'll, we'll get into that point later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, is this about Doom Eternal? <laughs> um, so I was really into Mist and. One day I realized that um, we were learning this super old thing I don't think even exists in any form anymore, which is called Hyper Studio. It was sort of like primitive photo, or not Photoshop, um, PowerPoint. It was like primitive PowerPoint. <clears throat> and one day I was like, holy crap, wait, I could use this and make something like Mist in it. And so I did, and it sucked, and I've lost it now, unfortunately. I'd love to see how bad it sucked. Um but that sort of got me into, like, I, I started programming stuff in QBasic. I did a couple of um, really simple, like, ASCII uh, puzzly, not really puzzle games, just ASCII games, basically. Um, and then uh, sort of took a break for a while and then got into making stuff with Game Maker uh, when I was in college and did some, you know, 2D action games i actually um take pride in the fact that i made a survival crafting game that i never released unfortunately um but i like i like made that way before that genre was a thing like how oh, long I, ago oh geez how long ago was that like 2009 2010 maybe something like that I mean, it sucked. It wasn't, like, good at all, but... <clears throat> um, well, so do most of them, so... <laughs> fair. Um, so I toyed around with that for a while, released those, you know, for free on Yo-Yo Games, which was which was the style at the time. And um, then graduated college, uh, got married, and one day... I still kept messing around in Game Maker, and then... Um, at some point, I heard about Unity. I really wanted to transition into doing 3D stuff. Um, I think I tried messing around in JMonkey for a while, and that didn't go anywhere. I don't even know if JMonkey still exists, honestly. Uh, but then got into Unity and started doing... Um, I started with Fingerbones. That was my first game in Unity. And it was just a complete departure from anything else I'd ever done. It was like not an action game. It was very story-focused. It was very serious. 
Um, it was super weird. <laughs> it was. And so I, I did that, and um, I threw it up on Game Jolt, which at this time, this was like 2014-ish, I think. Um, so that was right in the middle of indie horror being a big thing on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with like everyone, that was like the big thing all the, everyone played was indie horror games and they found them all on Game Jolt. And I put it up on Game Jolt and I woke up the next morning and Game Jolt had decided to feature it on the front page for some reason. Um, so it got a whole bunch of attention. It got a whole bunch of people playing it. Um, and then I was like, wait, holy crap, what if I, like, make another game and then charge money for it? <clears throat> and then I can, like, make money doing this and I don't have to work at Dollar General anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> I did that, and that was the Moon Sliver. Mm. Released that onto Greenlight, um, and it eventually did get greenlit, which was amazing, and I released that on Steam. There was this crazy algorithm fluke that happened where it got accidentally like super discounted and featured on the front page because of the sale that was good it was something really weird that ended up getting a whole bunch of people um to see it in like a short period of time so that did fairly well uh did well enough that i ended up quitting working a dollar general and pursuing um piano tuning instead as like my uh self-employment thing um worked on the Music Machine, which was bigger and more ambitious and I thought would sell better. It did not, uh, because that is how Steam is. Um, and then after that, I did A Wolf in Autumn, which I developed really quickly and was super burnt out at that point and also did worse uh, than The Music Machine. So then I took a little break for a little while. Uh, this was around, I think, start of 2016 or... or somewhere like that uh, and just prototype stuff and one day decided to just prototype throwing this low poly crappy shotgun I made onto a first person character in unity and that game eventually became dusk which I then worked on for the next three or so years and it became a huge thing like in in my life and a pretty successful release I'd say and now here I am, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do next, basically. Yeah, yeah I would say that uh, Dusk is, I, I would, I'd be willing to put money on that. Dusk is your most financially profitable game so far. Far and away, like by a, by a magnitude of a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, you know, it's interesting because Dusk kind of came out in this, in this time period where there were, a lot of shooters that were that are now trying to replicate this older style. I think it mostly yeah. came as a response to Doom 2016. Uh, there was a lot of shooters that were like, what if we yeah. went back to this old, you know, Lord forgive me, you're going to make me go back to being the old me. And uh, all of these shooters started, you know, and now, now we have actually quite a lot. So we have, um, you know, Ion Fury and then uh, Wrath, Aeon of Ruin, um, a lot of three word titles, you know, a medieval, yeah, a medieval, uh, uh, yeah, but who cares about that? That's a lame. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for everyone listening, sort of, I'm always at, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say for everyone listening, uh, Dusk is published under New Blood, so a medieval is also New Blood, so you should definitely buy it, and a maximum action, and, uh, Faith, the yes. Holy Trinity, and, uh, Gloom, 
Haven. Gloomwood. Gloomwood. There we go. Gloomhaven, yes. the board game. I am, I am creative director at New Blood now, so I'm working on several of those games. Oh, cool. Gloomwood, Gloomwood and Maximum Action, specifically. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and maybe more in the future? Mm. Uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm always in this weird spot where I kind of am early-ish to these trends, but not quite early enough. Like I, like I said, or, or not early in the right way, I should say. Uh, like I said, I like did a whole bunch of survival-themed stuff before that was the big zeitgeist, um, but they weren't really good, and it, I didn't even finish any of them. They were just prototypes that never got released, so, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, and then Fingerbones was like... At least to my knowledge, that was one of the early uh, indie horror games that was more narrative-focused and not sort of like uh, collect the eight pages thing, mm-hmm. which was that was like the, the trend at the time. And that was, when I was making it, it, a big part of it was me like assuming the player was going to go into it thinking, well, this is an indie horror game, I'm going to be running from monsters, and then right. playing with that expectation. Of course, now, every single game is, you know narrative like a, a walking simulator sort of sort of deal um and then dusk uh i'd wanted to make a retro fps since i was like 14 um in fact the name dusk comes from a a game i quote designed when i was 14 or around that age um and like originally per my original development schedule it would have released like before any of them Maybe not before Doom 2016, but at least very close to that. Um, it wouldn't have been nearly as good, though, because then when I got involved with New Blood, uh, there was a lot of, like, polish and, cha- and you know, upping the scope of everything and just, in general, making it a better game. So I don't, I don't know that it would have actually done that well if I'd released it when I uh, intended to. But, yeah, I'm always sort of, like... <clears throat> at the beginning of these trends, but I'm never quite at the beginning in the right way for it to be like, you know, um, Mm. I'm the, I'm the one who started that. Maybe, I guess you could argue dusk was early enough that some people might say it started it. I don't think it did. I think it really was doom 2016 that did that. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course strafe was, um, strafe's Kickstarter was a thing before dusk too. And that, you know, put it in a lot of people's minds. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I remember um, when I first got the first press emails about Dusk. I think it was back in 2016. I mean, this was a long time ago. I bet it was. For a while. It was in development for a while, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now, you know, I mean, like, it, like Wrath is still technically in development. I, mean, I think that's mm-hmm. one's still in early access. So there's yeah, still a lot of them still being developed. Uh, I never really got into Strafe, though. I'm looking at it right now, and I'm like, why didn't I play this? And then I remembered that I was, like, spending all my money up on booze at the time it came out. Well, Strafe know. was I... also a little more of like a hybrid. It was like a, yeah, a roguelite rogue through a retro FPS lens. Yeah, I remember <laughs> the reception like wasn't that great. Not a lot of people liked it. Uh, it. I never played it, but from what I hear, it didn't live up to its promises. Well, I mean, that's the problem with indie games, right? Is that you can have something that comes out and everyone has all these expectations because of nostalgia and shit, and um, you never really, like, it doesn't Especially if you have like a one man team, like you know, Dusk Dusk is a really fun game, but it it's not gonna be you know Doom Eternal levels of you know like oh, all no. the crazy shit you can do, you know? <laughs> no, it's like, definitely not. There, yeah. we do not have the resources for that. I mean, Dusk was already straining a lot. What I could do is like one one. It wasn't even like like a super one man pro. Like I did what 
90% of that game on my own. But then there's, you know, Andrew did the music and we have uh, uh, Scott who worked on Duskworld. He did like all the net code and stuff for that. Um, <clears throat> Dylan who's working on Gloomwood uh, helped with, with a few things, especially toward the end. Um, we had a guy at New Blood who did, um, sorry, a girl at New Blood who did um, the UI. Uh, so yeah, you know, even there, it's, it's not like entirely a one, it wasn't just me in a room doing all of this myself and then releasing it. And, uh, you know, even in that situation, it was like really straining what I could do. Like by the end of dusk, I was just so burnt out working on that game. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if dusk hadn't done well, I, that would have been the end of me doing game development. Cause I was just so done. And it's like, if it had bombed at that point, I would have been like, well, okay, I think we're just going to go back to piano tuning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel that. I mean, it's, it's always a lot of the indie developers I talk to. It's, it's terrifying because you put, if you want your game to come out good, you have to put your heart and soul into it. You know, you have to be spending especially as an indie developer, a solo developer, you have to be spending long nights working on it. You have to be spending long time periods of time working on it. And you never know. You don't have the guarantee of a large company with like, Oh, well I'm still making my paycheck. You know, if, if, if call of duty comes out and it's not great, the graphic designer still gets to like feed his family, you know? Right. It's yeah. Um, it's a bit of a catch 22 because there are so many indie games out there. There are so many people who are making games to be something that, um, really stands out and that people really are like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's the one I want to spend my money on. It kind of has to be either you have to get really lucky or, and, or you um, just put your entire being into making that game. And yeah. if it succeeds and it's like, Oh cool. That was worth it. Um, if it doesn't succeed, it's like, well, that super sucks. You know, yeah. you just, it's, it's not like it's not from lack of hard work or lack of vision or anything. It's just, it's it's a creative market. That's how all creative markets are. Yeah. You know, that's how music is. Music is way worse, actually. Um, that's how literature. It's just that's how it is in a in a creative driven market. There's always yeah. a lot of competition and there's a lot of randomness. Yeah, I mean that's one of the reasons I wanted to do when I when I came up with the idea of the Dreadx collection. It was like let's do something that'll give developers a chance to be creative quickly, quick turnaround. Hopefully, it'll sell a billion copies. But honestly, it's like. For a lot of people, it's it, they want to be able to pursue different ideas, but the the sunk cost of like okay, the time I put in. So, but it was I, I I thought that you know it's the interesting thing about when I reached out to all the developers is I really thought that the, like the money would be the big draw, but the big draw was being able to work on something new with like you know the the money is nice for a little bit of financial security because it's you know it justifies their time, but most of them were more excited about the chance to work on a new project and be able to justify it, you know. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I was um, excited about the... See, I've never done a game game jam before. I've never actually done something with that quick a turnaround time. Maybe like maybe some small, tiny thing I did in a weekend that I've forgotten, but like not a real game that I, you know, focused on. Um, I've never done that before, and the reason is that... Um, well, by, you know, once this became my job, this is how I make my living then it just wasn't practical. Like, I'm not going to spend a week doing this thing for a game jam just for fun that I can't really sell. Like, mm -hmm. you, you can sell game jam games, but it's not the same thing as, like, just taking that time and putting it toward your main project that you're hoping to sell for, like, 
more money, money that's going to be, you know, make it livable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for in this case, I was excited about, well, first, there's, you know, you get paid for this. There, it's not a, it's not a waste of time. And second, it is a set period of time in which you conceptualize and develop and release a title. And for me, someone who, um, I work very iteratively and I tend to, I, I would, I would say my scope of projects can tend to get out of control. And I honestly tend to work on things to a point where I get burned out on them. Mm-hmm. Having that time limit to be like, okay, we are going to do something new and we're going to develop it in this amount of time. And then it's going to be done. You don't have any, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to lay awake at night being like, Oh my gosh, do I need to put another month into this to make it perfect? Like is, if I release it like this, is everyone going to hate it? No, it's just a week. You are done. It gets released. That's it. That yeah. was very attractive to me. Yeah, I think that that's that's something that a lot of people don't think about is the psychological toil of game development. Um, is it's like they mess. always think, yeah, it's it's like I lose sleep over all the stuff that I have to do on my end to get this done. You know, like is does the PR company have the the corrections to the press release right? Do they are all the people I'm trying to reach out to like you know the people don't think about the cycle like I. I lay awake being like, why hasn't this one streamer that I reached out to that might be interested in playing this gotten back to me yet? You know, like, yeah. is it something I said? Is it like, you know, and, and for indie devs too, it's uh, one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest psychological drains is, um, is not necessarily failing per se. It's not getting bad reviews, although bad reviews are <laughs> draining. It's having nobody care. It's when you've you've put you know a year of your life into this thing and you release it and nobody cares and no one's playing it or paying attention to it and you don't have any tools at your disposal to fix that. Yeah. Um, I am now in a very privileged position, and I know that I, there are, uh, that I can kind of um, bypass some of that now. You know, I've got a lot of people who like me because of Dusk, um, but for a while there, it was it could be so frustrating where. You just like, I don't know what to do to get people to care about this. Is it, yeah. you know, is the game just bad? I don't know because no one will play it and tell me, you know. <laughs> oh, no. What you have to do is you have to package it with uh, rumors about Resident Evil 8 and then everyone will fucking click on it. <laughs> right. Oh, no, it's, it's, that's the nature of, um, like, most gamers aren't, um, smart. Uh, like they're not looking to like expand their horizons. A lot of people want what's comfortable. And I'm not trying to say, I mean, I did say to start off by saying that they're not smart. They're not looking to go outside of their comfort zone. And so you have to stride this, walk this line between releasing something that people are going to want to play with also what is my creative artistic vision. And um, that can be hard to do, especially for an indie creative because so many creative types want to make something unique. Um, And I've said this on a, a pod before, the, the best piece of advice I ever got in my career was uh, someone said, Ted, everyone's so worried with being unique. No one's concerned with doing something well. And um, I think you have to ride that line between being unique and doing something well, because so often you're so many indies are so focused on. I have the most unique, hottest take on this, the most creative game. Um, like I, I and I think that especially looking at you and your your creative process, I don't think you would make finger bones now. I'm not saying finger bones is bad. What I'm saying is is that it's it's your evolution of who you are as a creative. You you put that finger bones out there as a kind of experiment. You were you were feeling yeah. around, but you hadn't yet really gotten the grasp of 
the kind of gameplay flow that you can obviously see in Dusk. And those earlier iterations, um, people shouldn't be ashamed of the early iterations they have to do to get to where they are now. Like you had to go through finger bones and then, uh, you know, the, 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 the less successful, uh, sliver of the moon, I think is what I was called. I'm trying to remember the moon sliver, the yeah. moon, sliver, the moon silver. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, that's the process. You have to go through the things that uh, the, the successes that you get in some of them and then the failures you get in others and then kind of, but you, that's the thing is that we as outside fans, we as the, the audience only see the end product. We only see, Hey, you're dusk dev. You're the guy that made that dusk game. We don't see. The, the 10 years before that where no one knew you by name, you know? Right. <clears throat> and that's, yeah. that's the hard part. Yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, so you hear that the story of your, your journey is, I think, um, incredibly enlightening, you know? Yeah. I think, um, I've honestly had a very, uh, a very lucky journey through game dev, uh, compared with, uh, probably a lot of other develop like it can be very difficult to be an indie developer and i've had some struggles in the past and probably will have struggles in the future also just because it's a difficult career um but i've been i've definitely had a lot of uh strokes of luck in things that have helped me to get to this point yeah no i feel you uh it's like yeah so many indie devs it's like you work on things for years, like 10 years and no one notices. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. That's why like, well, part of the unfortunate thing is that, well, maybe not unfortunate. It's just the reality is that, uh, being a, especially a solo indie developer, you are not just an artist. You are also a business person. Um, and those two can be mutually exclusive sometimes. And you have to kind of figure out how to balance, you know, when, when am I Mr. Super Artistic and out there? And when am I a uh, pragmatic businessman? Yeah. Um, and currently in 2020 game development, um, it's a very, very risky move to do. Well, so what I did with Dusk, it's like Dusk could have crashed and burned and um, I'm very lucky it didn't. But to take that amount of time working on a game or working on a single game that's very risky. Um, not just because you're putting that much, you know, time and effort and stuff into a single thing um, that the dice is going to get rolled against, rather than putting that time and effort into a bunch of stuff that the dice is going to get rolled against, but also because um, the indie market changes so rapidly. Um, something that is like super hot stuff one year, next year is like, nope, that doesn't sell anymore. Oh, yeah. Um, so if you're spending three or four years on something well maybe when you started that would have been a super successful release but by the time you finished it nobody cares anymore yeah and the big problem with the indie market especially with the uh, uh on both sides of it is that like a topic that can be really hot one year can also like destroy your career later like imagine if you had made a game after 9-11 about like shooting terrorists like you would probably have made a lot of money right after 9-11 and now no one would hire you yeah yeah, that's also definitely a um, that's definitely a, a risk. Also, well, and I, I see this a lot with um, internet personalities. I'm I'm old enough that my memory is long. You know, I remember back right. when the angry video game nerd was the hottest thing on the internet. You know, yeah. And um, 
back then there was a lot of people that were trying to ape that style and there was but the the style of humor from when I was growing up on the internet is is unconscionable to try to ha- replicate that style of humor now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the things that I thought that that all the friends in the chat rooms would say, like I I grew up on like 4chan, you know, like the things yeah. that were being said was horrible, and I had to grow up and learn that those things weren't okay to say. Um, but I see a lot of streamers and stuff like that that are looking for views, and they they'll rise to fame by doing shocking shit, and then just have an equally horrible fall from grace because of that shocking shit. You get addicted to the to the fame, and it's it's on it's like I was saying, it's on both sides of the market. It's like you can chase trends and then get some success, but you have to be your your you can fall from grace very quickly, uh, just just by the whims of the market. I mean, like who? I'm trying to think about the different streamers that you know were popular one year and aren't the next, but it's it's hard to even remember who was popular three years ago. You know, right? Ah, it's a very fickle market. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. That's why I always, I always, even though I don't personally like, um, like Markiplier as like a, a, a streamer myself, I, I respect what he does, um, because he's like consistent, very consistent content. He knows his market and like he doesn't like use the N word to get viewers like some streamers, you know? Right. He is a very, very smart person, honestly. Like his, I know his whole persona is not being not that, but like the decisions that he makes, um, and the way he adapts to the changes in like the in YouTube and stuff like that, he he definitely knows what he's doing. Yeah, uh, he he's conscious about it. So many people, when they get a little bit of fame, they decide to let it so that uh, to try to ride that fame and to not having to be aware of the changes, not having to to adapt. To, oh, I'm famous enough that I don't have to. And no, nah, you're never you're never bigger than the company, bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're never bigger than all the internet. Unless yeah, you're PewDiePie, yeah. I guess. I guess PewDiePie is like, but he's kind of an anomaly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, none of us are PewDiePie. He will never be no. PewDiePie. That'd be great. Not yet, but <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, you've been kind of quiet, didn't you? Want to? You're you like Dusk, don't you? I. He's <laughs> like, no, it sucks. <laughs> I don't know. I never actually got around to playing it. Uh, I mean, it looks super cool. Um, I do it's appreciate okay. that people are going back to like. PS2 era uh, video game style, or I guess that was more Quake style. PS2 didn't really have games that were that fast. Um, but <laughs> right. I just, uh, you know, the having a game that's retro um, typically means um, like sub 16 bit pixel art uh, platformer. And that's. I don't know. It's kind of boring. It's kind of old. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of um, chirpy music <laughs> outside of like my what I heard playing, you know, Game Boy and shit growing up. You know, it's refreshing to see people like the evolution and like eventually we're going to see like a return to like, uh, you know, PS3 era style games, which were you know, high quality, but still, like, clunky and shitty. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. You know what's interesting is that we never know which current golden age of gaming we're in. Like, um, back in the PS1 era, that was like the golden age of the, the kids' platformers. You know, you had Spyro the Dragon and Crash Bandicoot and all these games that people still love today. Oh, yeah. 
Um, but it's not like if you were there back then, you were like, ah, this will be still played in 10 years and people will love it. And the next generation will totally, I guess the next generation had Jack and Daxter and, um, uh, Ratchet and Clank, which were good, but you know, like what, what good childhood whimsy action platformers are coming out on the PS3 and PS4. Oh yeah. There's Knack. (laughs) Knack 2, baby. Yeah. Which apparently wasn't that bad, I guess. Knack? Knack 2? I Knack heard Knack. I, I don't know. I, I think it's funny that it exists. There's yeah. uh there's Yarny. Oh, you're talking about uh uh Unravel. Unraveled, yes. Oh, I remember okay. I remember the guy uh presenting it at like a, a show. Just E3. This guy. I was there. You, you saw the, the guy who Yeah, played he brought it out five. and he was like shaking and so nervous. It was so cute. It was endearing. Um and he did have cool like uh, Atlantis velocity uh, tattoos on his hand, um, yeah. but yeah, it was very awkward and he was very nervous and it was yeah. endearing. Well, David, uh, it was during the EA uh, E3 press show, so oh, you know boy, that would like, be a huge contrast then. Yeah, it was like it was like here's fucking FIFA star number seventeen, whatever. Right. Uh, here's Madden. Here's the here's the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Here's okay, Battlefield throw... Three. Here's Yarn. <laughs> yeah. Here's Battlefield One. Uh, okay. Now we're gonna introduce Yarn Game. And this guy comes down. He's like an indie dev. He's like, I've wanted to get my game made for so long. And and then he opens his jacket and he's like, Here's the character. This is Yarny. He's an actual childhood toy of mine. And I wanted to give him an adventure. And everyone's just like, Oh. And he That's and he the takes most adorable thing ever. Like he takes the hand of Yarny and makes it wave and is like, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah. Um, why did we Why did we start talking about this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember what? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, children's game on like modern consoles. Um, this is uh, this is going back a bit, but you said uh, your game that Dusk doesn't do what uh, what Doom twenty sixteen can do. I think it does more because I saw that clip on your Twitter of the guy who picked up like uh, you know probably <laughs> yes. seven seven or eight of a pickup. Some buff <laughs> for the fast fire, yeah. For the fast fire, and his gun shot probably ten thousand rounds per second. His uh, yes. his double barrel shotgun. Um, that's something that yes, that no other game will ever have. That's uh, that one is a thing work I'd like to art. point out about that is that that was not an oversight that became a feature. That was deliberately coded in. Fuck yeah, to make it so that you could just stack those things and it could go insane. Hell yeah. Yeah. That's good game design. Good indie (laughs) games are deliberately janky. It's like, um, so (laughs) there's janky, there's janky games because the developer is not good enough to make it unjanky, but it's like, um, like really good writing. Like people that never want to learn how to be a writer, they just like throw words together and it's bad because they don't know the rules of language. And then when you're a moderate writer, you have the rules of language down. So you know where to put the commas and stuff. And then when you're a good writer, that's when you can start using things creatively, like funny word combinations, like puns and things like that. And that's what I feel like janky games are, is that you've learned the language of game design so much that you know how to have deliberately enjoyable jank. Mm, okay. That, I could get behind that, yeah. I'm a big fan of janky games, whether it's intended or not. There, I, yeah. Jank makes the game come alive, without a doubt. I hate. Well, it's like, sort of like a... It's sort of like a, a human being. Like, yeah. 
Um, yeah, exactly. The characters that people fall in love with in literature and stuff are the ones that have flaws that make them interesting. And I think that I find that for me, that's also true with entertainment. Like the stuff I end up being the most attached to is the stuff that is like flawed and weird and quirky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, oh, sorry. You go. No, I mean, I was, uh, I was going to say that, uh, we should probably, speaking of flawed and weird and quirky and also perfect, we should talk about uh, the Pony Factory here in a minute. But Jesse, why don't ah, you go yes. ahead and uh, why don't you go ahead and ask your question first? Oh, I was just going to say that uh, on the on the topic of Jank, uh, Trevor and I we have PS Plus, and we the game for the month was uh, Dirt Two, which is like uh, a racing game where you're not actually racing anybody else; you're just trying to get the best time. And it is so polished and realistic, it kind of, like, depresses me. (laughs) Like, the content. Yeah, like, it's, like, there's, it doesn't, it feels like, I I don't know, I can't even put it into words. It's too clean, Mm, which is weird for a game. Yeah, it feels soulless. Uh, And, like, on top of that, like, while you're driving, you have a guy in your in your passenger seat giving you pace notes which i certainly don't know what it means but you have a guy being like 13 right up up b12 what what does that even mean i don't know i mean i'm sure if you're a race car driver it makes sense no actually it doesn't there was a race car driver who like had a had a partner who would always do pace notes and he admitted in an interview like yeah he just says bullshit i don't know i I drive (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the, and the partner great. and the partner was really hurt about it. He's like, I thought we were, I thought we were a team. Okay, let's get back on topic. Uh, okay, just real quick, I, 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 everyone I talk to doesn't really understand the the appeal of racing games, but I, I came up with an analogy that's really good because my my uh, my uncle was a race car driver, and I always thought it was very boring watching NASCAR. And I think that's a sentiment that most people that aren't into NASCAR think that NASCAR is like weird and very boring. But he put it to me. In a way that I will uh, uh, always like. He's like, I don't know why necessarily the fans like it. Mostly, I think they're just drinking. But he said, as a race car driver, you know that moment in when you're driving and you're driving in a dangerous conditions and you're almost crash. He said that is what you are doing for hours on end. He said the whole thing is about trying to basically play a game of chicken with the guy in front of you so that you can get right past him and edge him out because he thinks that you might hit him. And you just you just barely get ahead. And it's like it's doing that over and over again for 500 laps is almost being in an accident twice a lap for 500 laps. And he said okay, and the mental strain is insane. Awesome. Yeah, I was like, yeah, dope. no, that's <laughs> like that's it. That's actually like, OK, now I get why you do it. Um, yeah. I think most people watch it because they, it's an excuse to drink beer. But I mean, yeah, excuses to drink beer are pretty good, right? <laughs> well, you're talking to two sober people over here. So. Oh, okay. I don't actually <laughs> like beer, so I'm... <laughs> you know, I'm a I mean, vodka, man. Uh, that's why I fit. I, that's one of the reasons I find uh, drag racing to be so fucking boring. Because it's like it's not even like about the drivers. It's about like they're just hitting the gas pedal, right? Like yeah, it's just yeah. about who, gas pedal down. Who, yeah, it's like who made the best engine. We'll just figure that yeah. out and then, then fuck you. Like, I don't, don't waste our time. Um, I think the thing about drag racing is that then the engine gets destroyed after one use. Yeah. yeah. The tires. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And then like when it's like slightly off balance, it like 
like the car takes off like a jet. Like, <laughs> like goes okay, that is dope. Yeah, yeah that, that is dope. But that's not the intended result. That's like that's the that's the exception. Okay, but what if what if we invented new drag racing where that was the intended results? Call it like I don't know, drag rocketing or something. Mm-hmm. Drag that crashing. Cool. Drag. <laughs> yeah, like don't give them uh, parachutes. Uh, don't. Um, <laughs> It's just uh, a test of how durable your body is. Yeah, put, put <laughs> wings on it like it's a like it's a Kerbal Space Program. Just random wings <laughs> all over it, and uh, see where it goes. This I competition brought to you by Mr. Glass from the movie Unbreakable. <laughs> the only the only competition is just like who survives. Yeah, like who who survives the competition. There's not even any like like time or yeah. or race or anything. It's just once once you crash. Who's still alive? Much yeah, like figure I'll... skating, it's not about time; it's about the feel. It's about who's still alive. How else would we find out who's the who's got the mutant next generation gene? That's the only yeah. way we can find out it's through mass casualties. <laughs> <coughs> oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cough into the mic. Jesse's yeah. gonna have to edit that out. You're good. Or leave it in. Fuck it. Who cares? Um. So, Pony Factory. Uh, that's your game. Yes, that is my game. Uh, uh tell sorry. us about the Pony Factory. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see where to start. So, in doing this thing, like I said, I I've never really do- done something with this quick a turnaround before. Um, so there were several. I have this big Trello board of just ideas. Um, I'm sure most developers have that in some form. Um, and I looked through it. I looked through it, and there were a couple ones where it's like well, this would make a good one-off jam game. Um, and it's something I've kind of never done before. Um, but the spirit of this was you make something that is a teaser for what could be a larger game, right? So the, most of those ideas didn't really fit that. It was like, well, this would be a nice small game, but it wouldn't work as a bigger game. Um, and also I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I have to do this in a week. Um, I don't purchase assets. I'll use stock textures um, and I will, I will use um, stock sounds, but I won't purchase any models or anything like that. So that already puts me at a disadvantage. Um, because just to I can't... be clear, nothing, nothing against our lovely developers in the project that do purchase assets. Right, that's just totally, me. It's totally fine. <laughs> that's just that's just part of I um, find. I've talked about this on Twitter before and stuff too, but I find that like creatively, it's a lot better if I have to work through those limitations rather than just bypassing them. Right. Um, I find that that that's better for me. Um, but that already that puts me at a disadvantage time wise because then I can't just be like, okay, here's what I want to do. I'll buy the assets for that. I have to make those assets, or I have to repurpose them from something I've already done. Um, and so, excuse me, having a bit of a tickle in my throat. Hopefully, I don't have the coronavirus. The, um, the hopefully, yeah, hopefully, my last contribution to this world will not be the pony factory. Don't don't worry. Uh, Ted uh, and I are both wearing our face masks. Oh, okay. I should be fine. In front of these mics. Um, so I, uh, so I was like, I want to do something that is, um, that is kind of safe. You know, something that I I know I can do, rather than something where I'm experimenting and might run into an unforeseen issue that then sets me back, you know, a few days or whatever. Um, and in addition to that, I figured that kind of the the style for indie horror right now is, uh, like I said before, it's, 
I hate using the term walking simulator because it sounds derisive, but I don't mean it derisively. It's just a really, it's, it's just kind of what everyone understands, you know, a certain type of game to be, even though it's not really a very accurate label. Um, but a lot of indie horror games are very atmospheric, um, slow paced, sort of narrative, sometimes narrative driven, sometimes just sort of aesthetic driven things. Yeah. They're not Um, mechanics driven. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of went into this figuring, well, that's probably more along the lines of what other people are going to do. And I want to do something a little different. You know, we want to have a variety of this collection, right? So I'm like, well, probably no one else is going to do a shooter. It's just for whatever reason, there aren't that many indie developers who go to doing first person shooters, especially in horror. I was like, okay, I just got done doing dusk. I'll just make this simple little, um, I can do, you know, like one weapon, one enemy type. Um, I can set it in, you know, an industrial environment because that's something that I, I'm like obsessed with. I, I love urban exploration. I love industrial stuff. Um, and that, you know, that should be good. Um, and then in addition to that, one thing I have always wanted to do since I played um, Betrayer, that that game from X Monolith developers. Mm-hmm. Um, Ever since I was just blown away by the high-contrast black and white aesthetic, I thought that it was absolutely gorgeous, and mm-hmm. I've, all, I've wanted to do something like that ever since I played that. So I'm like, okay, well, why don't I just do a black and white game? I can, you know, just try it out and see how it goes. Yeah. Um, so all of that kind of went into the stew to, okay, now what I'm going to make is a horror first-person shooter that's in high contrast black and white and uh heck with it we'll throw in the doom 3 flashlight mechanic because i've always thought that was cool Mm -hmm. um having that uh having that having that like you know decision to what do you want to see or do you want to shoot obviously it's not that much of a decision because if there's something on the screen you need to shoot then you're going to be shooting but um what's really cool is in doom 3 is that then when you don't have the flashlight out you're using um, muzzle flash, you're using yes. environmental lights, you're using uh, fireballs that enemies conjure, using all of that to try and read um, the combat situation. Um, so I thought I'd throw that whole dynamic into the mix too. And I figured, okay, that seems like it's enough to make an engaging, short experience. Um, and that's what I did, tried to do with the Pony Factory. The whole um, concept of the game <laughs> is that you are going through this factory that was made to make magical ponies. Um, and the way they make magical ponies is they just take human beings and they stretch and twist them up into a pony shape. Um, and then they imbue them with hell energy, which is the pony magic. And then they're magical ponies. But the thing is, um, that doesn't really result in magical ponies. That results in feral hell beasts that want to kill you. So that's why it's a horror game and not a magical adventure. Um, so yeah, and that actually that um, didn't come about until a little ways in. Um, originally, I was going to do something a little more boring. It was just like, oh yeah, it's just a I don't know, magical realism factory. It's horrible and evil. Go for it. Um, and then I kind of was like, uh, if if I'm going to do this, I want to do something that's like unique and people remember it. So I did the pony thing. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I, I think it turns out really well, too, because um, the monsters themselves are terrifying because uh, at, a, at a glance, you know, like it's immediately apparent that there's something wrong with them. And that makes them very scary. Plus, it's um, 
not an enemy you're used to fighting. It's not a, a soldier with gun. It's like this yeah. weird crawling, strangely moving. It's, it's 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 just a little too fast to be comfortable around, you know? Yeah, one thing I learned with Dusk is that I have a very weird sense of humor. I already knew that, but <clears throat> with Dusk, I learned specifically that if I do something that I think is like kind of scary, but also kind of funny, most people just parse that as really horrifying. Uh, like the horror enemy in Dusk, I always thought he was kind of goofy. Like I made him to be sort of goofy. And then talking to players afterward, they're like, what? You think that? No, that's just horrifying and it's terrible. I'm like, okay. So that's kind of influenced how I've done, like, thought about developing stuff now after Dusk. And that went into where I'm like, you know, I didn't make it a serious, it is a serious game. Like, it's not really like a haha comedy game, um, the mm -hmm. Pony Factory, but um, I made the plot, you know, ridiculous and something that I think is like silly and funny, but has a horror tinge to like, uh, has a horror theme to it, figuring, well, I guess that makes it scarier for people. So, you know, the ponies are like, they're just these horrible fleshless monsters that then have unicorn horns because they're magical ponies and i think you know the idea being not for you to think they're funny but for them to be right on that line of like this is ridiculous but that makes it grotesque and horrifying mm -hmm. that makes sense no i mean I, I it totally makes sense and i i definitely got that like there is a an inherent uh goofiness to something called the pony factory you yeah. know? and that the fact that they have unicorn horns yeah. Yeah, it's supposed it's it's supposed to be like ridiculous and goofy and then that because it's then not not put in like a haha it's a joke light it, that that just makes it more grotesque. Sort of mm -hmm. like the you know the concept behind what what is that movie a tusk or whatever? Oh yeah. It makes yeah. So, sort of like that same idea where it's like, you know, it's goofy but that's what makes it worse than if it were just not goofy yeah a lot of horror is just inherently silly i mean i keep yeah. i'm sure i've mentioned it on the show before but uh every time i play like a haunted house game uh i mean the the concept of a haunted house is that you are in the realm of a like extra dimensional being with complete control over the environment and it uses that power to prank you yeah, basically. Like to throw, well, I mean, my... throw balls Sorry, and throw, you know, tip over yeah. like blocks and put a push a stroller into the hallway. Like, yeah, it could kill you immediately if it wanted. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like, nah, I'm just gonna freak him out. Yeah. Um. Well, my favorite horror movie of all time is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that is you another know, like, movie about a, a guy comedy. who's just another movie about a guy who's just going around pranking people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pranking them with a with a. Ch Actually, the funny thing about that is that uh, more people die via hammer than they do chains. There's only one person who dies via chainsaw in that movie. You know what? I fucking love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Let me That's tell you the why. Best. <laughs> I, it's you got to understand what it is because a lot of people don't get it. Because why would I want to watch a movie that's just gore and whatever? A lot of, and I say you got to respect it because. You know, you're, you're, they're, they're, they're sitting there around a table and they're like, we want to come up with a movie. This is what, the 70s, I think is when it came yeah, out? Yeah, 76, I think. Or, no, 74. It's either 74 or 76. And they're like, 
what if we come up with the most shocking movie and we don't hide it? We just call it the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's <laughs> nothing subtle about it. There's nothing subtle about the whole fucking movie. And yet, if you watch it, like the shots and the filmmaking are actually like they're they're grungy and they're grimy, but they're skilled. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing about that movie. It's it's like elevated grindhouse. Yeah, and it's one of those things where if you can't get over the initial shock of it, then it's doing its job because it exists to shock you. Yeah, and if you can get over the initial shock of it, there's more to find in it, and I find that it works on both levels, and I love that. Yeah, it's. I mean, the crazy thing about that movie is that it is actually not very gory at all. No, um, there's very little gore in that, even for the time. And the reason for that is because Toby Hooper was originally aiming for a PG rating. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> there was he remember he, he talked about like uh, he called the was it the MPAA at that point mm-hmm. Wh- whoever um and was like, hey, okay, so if I have a girl getting hung on a meat hook, um, can I get a PG rating if I don't show the meat hook actually going through her? And they were just like, well, that would help, I guess. <laughs> it did not get a PG rating. Yeah. Um, but it results in a, like, honestly, if that movie were gorier, like looking back on it now, it would just be ridiculous looking. But if even watching it today, it's a really, like, deeply viscerally disgusting movie and i think part of that is that the stuff about it that's disgusting is the ideas and the whole atmosphere it has it's not the actual gore on screen yeah. like the actual people getting killed is the least disturbing part of that movie it's the whole just like i said really visceral feeling of everything being like rotten and hot and nasty and that's throughout that whole film it's great mm-hmm. i love it <clears throat> So, uh, the, the, but the thing about the Pony Factory that I, I really, so I, I have played it, um, and by time of this going out, uh, I'm not sure who else would have played it yet. We haven't yet decided which outlets are going to be getting, uh, the first looks, but, um, it's, it's actually longer than, uh, I thought it would be because you kind of cheat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do. And, um, I, I, I didn't, I, I almost didn't want to bring it up because I don't want to spoil the game for people, but, um, there, the point of this podcast, Real Professional, has always been to try to give people that are outside of the industry that want to get into the industry practical, actionable advice. Okay. You know, it's like, uh, so you as someone who's, I think your whole story of how you got into game design and what you did to kind of get to where you are is is useful. But um, what are some kind of tips and tricks you've learned along the way that would help someone that's new getting into the industry uh, get some more meat out of their games? um well smart asset reuse is very helpful and i think that um i tried to because of again the you know the deadline uh the week-long deadline i had to do a bunch of that now how smart and effective it is is of course up to the player to decide but um so there's things like uh well for one thing i i we were allowed to reuse assets from older projects if need be, and I did. Um, I have a prototype I was doing that I kind of shelved for a while um, that involved a lot of photo sourced, uh, a lot of fo- like photo sourced models. So it's something that I would I would take a bunch of pictures of the thing and then model it and then use those pictures as the, the texture on it rather than like um, 
creating a material in uh, what a what do what do good developers use the um, I don't know I'm not a developer s- the the thing the thing that everyone uses to, I don't remember it's a thing that everyone uses to make PBR materials that I've never used because I I'm terrible but um anyway I had a bunch of those that I took and put into this project and used as like stuff on the shelves in, um I had a bunch of textures from that too uh, that I'd already um, taken and kind of made seamless and made good. Um, and so I used all of that, you know, uh, asset reuse, do not be afraid of it. Um, but the other thing is that, um, I did still have to create some unique assets. You, you just can't really get away with that. Um, so the stuff that I made, uh, was made with the idea that it could be used for multiple purposes, basically. Um, or not just multiple purposes, but could be used in a variety of situations. It wasn't just like, okay, here's this one thing, and this is the only way you use it. So it was like, um, I made a barrel asset. And the reason for that is that this is a video game, and that means you can put barrels everywhere. You know, people are used to that sort of set dressing. It doesn't trip their, hey, that's a reused asset. It's just like, oh, of course there are more barrels. This is a video game. Um, I could have also done a crate asset, and I was planning on doing that because, again, video games and crates go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. That's something you can put everywhere as a form of set dressing, and it doesn't it doesn't bother anyone that much. Um, didn't get around to doing that, so it was just the barrels. <laughs> and, <coughs> excuse me. Um, in addition to that, I did a valve. Um, a valve you can use. You can put it on pipes. Um, you can. You can. I, I was planning on at some point maybe blowing it up to be really big and using it as a flywheel. That didn't end up happening. Um, <laughs> there's a pipe set that I was working on, a set of like modular pipe elements that I was working on for Gloomwood um, that I brought in, and those are just used to, you know, build pipes going around like pipes on walls and stuff like that. Um, for Dusk, I'd done those all with uh, the level design tool. Um, This is actually, uh, Pony Factory is, um, I did a lot more modular assets than I'd done in like Dusk. Maybe not a lot more, but a lot more uh, like uh, relatively, or proportionally speaking, bigger use of them. Um, But, and oh, and there are some, I had one single uh, light asset where it's like a light bulb in a light, in a, like a cage. Um, so I used that to do some lights that had like the light bulb in the cage and the cage is casting shadows. So there's like a pattern. Um, and then other ones, I disabled the cage. So it's just a light bulb, just like a bare light bulb. And those are the only thing in the game that's used for lights for the other than like light coming in windows and stuff like that. So then, um, I made a few control panels. I made two control panel assets and those control panels were made entirely from assets I'd already created. Um, there's a bunch of lights on them and those are the light bulb asset that I just talked about scaled down really small, um, Mm -hmm. placed all over. There's also some, uh, valves on them. Those are the valve asset. There are some weird looking fusey things. Those are the barrel assets scaled down to like tiny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, and then uh, gauges. I also made a gauge thing that was used for um, putting on pipes or putting on um, modular machine. Well, you know, I made some like modular machines later. Uh, and like, there's a part in the game where you 
encounter these machines that are like we're looking things with all these gauges on them that have these like tesla coils um sparking mm-hmm. electricity those are just entirely made for like the machine body itself is a giant barrel that's scaled to a weird size and then there's like a pipe on the front going into the ground and a pipe on the side and there are gauges on the front um and then the tesla coil is actually from dusk uh that i just retextured mm-hmm. um so anyway those two control panels then uh there's two variants of them then so i can um you know you don't you don't want just one because if you place one single variant all in a row then people can see that pattern so there are two variants so you can vary them up you know put um both of those variants all in a row um and then also uh don't be afraid to flip stuff upside down if you need it to look different because once you flip something like that upside down that breaks the pattern a little bit Mm -hmm. um same thing happened with shelves i had a single metal shelf asset I then populated that with the different prefabs from that prototype um, in different configurations and made like four different or three different variations of the shelf that then I could quickly place. Um, So all that to say that um, if you're, you know, being really smart with like how you use the assets you already have rather than always going to, oh, well, I need this very specific thing. That means I need to either make it or buy it. If you can figure out a way to be like, okay, well, maybe what I already have, I can use that, you know, in this way, and that'll be good enough. Um, that's very useful to you as an indie developer. Because one thing to remember is that, for the most part, um, it's more important for you to get something made and get an idea out there than it is for that idea to exist perfectly in your head or on your idea board. Right, right. That's what I was going to say is that, you know, there's there's the you're never going to have the perfect asset for everything in your game. Even the bigger companies don't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so don't get caught up on it. There's one way to do things. There's always creative workarounds. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing I would, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, I was say, the other thing I would say is do not be afraid of iteration at all. Iteration is your friend. Actually. Um, I don't, I don't think, I don't. I guess I shouldn't make a blanket statement because every developer is different. But I don't think that it's usually a good idea to take an idea and then just create. Uh, it's called. There's two different workflows they talk about. What is it? It's waterfall and agile. And waterfall is when you take a concept and you just make that as quickly as possible, sticking to the original plan. And I think. I, I mean, if I'm, I'm probably getting this way wrong, but um. And then agile is like uh, how does that it's more iterative or something. I don't know. Someone someone listening will probably be like, You are an idiot, that's not what those mean at all. But basically no, this, this is the podcast where you can be wrong about everything. It's fine. Okay, cool. That's good for me then. <laughs> um, but basically as a in I I'm pretty sure this is true for just creative stuff in general, but I can only speak as an indie developer, which is that you want to be okay and open and ready for things to change as you're working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't just create a giant design document. I mean, I don't create design documents at all, but you, know, you don't create this design document and then just work on that document for a year and then make the thing in the document. Over the period of time you are working on it, it changes. Over the period of time I was working on the Pony Factory, which was seven days, it changed from what I originally envisioned for things. Like levels I started on a, you know, a, a specific day and then finished two hours later were different 
from what I had conceptualized when I started that. Um, it's really important to be flexible and be open to like iterating on concepts and adjusting to uh, challenges you encounter or just you know having a random idea out of the blue that is better than the one you had before. Um, yeah, that's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's really good advice. Um, just keep working on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, we're running a little over time now, so I think I'm going to do... Yeah, that uh, happens with me. I talk a lot. <laughs> no, it's good. I think I think that a lot of people... Um, it, it's kind of like I, what I said earlier. A lot of people are only going to see the end results of, of a human being. You know, like we only see uh, David over here as Dusk Dev. We don't see all the other stuff we, that he built on to get to where he is, to get to how he has this thought process, how, he, how you have this thought process. Mm. Um, and so I, I think it's really useful to, to be able to, to listen to that. And I, I want to, well, I, first off, I want to thank you for, first off, joining part in not only this podcast, but this whole uh, Drex collection. Yeah, I think it's a very cool thing. Um, yeah. And honestly, I mean, a little bit in the weeds here, but I, I've been pretty impressed with basically everything i've been seeing from everyone it's it's crazy to see what people have come up with in seven days and the there's a really crazy variety in what people are gonna get with the package you know yeah i haven't uh unfortunately i haven't had a chance to play the other games yet i'm going to do that as soon as possible but from everything i've seen there's a huge difference in what everyone has come up with oh man you're gonna you're gonna really enjoy some of the weirder ones because um I just played Rot Gut today, which is a Will's game. It was Soda the, Drinker Pro soda, game. Okay, yeah, I'm looking forward to trying that one. It is like the concept behind it is already like that's weird. It was <laughs> to do a game based. First of all, that's weird that that happened to you. Like, I have several questions there. Second of all, it's a weird, weird thing to base a game. I'm very much looking forward. Yeah, to it. it's it's so cool too because I was playing it. And I was like, okay, this is a soda drinker pro game. It's very strange. And like the mechanics are very questionable. Like, like I, I awesome. can't see someone with that's, that's like a, a guy coming right out of school being like, I have to the games are this making this game. You know, it's very like, it, you have to almost like forget what a game is to imagine what a soda drinker pro kind of game is. That makes me very excited. And when I finished, I, I talked to him and he was like, Oh, which ending did you get? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, there are six. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, cause I cannot fathom how there are six endings in this game because it is, and he's like, yeah, if you do this or this. And I'm like, okay, there were things in this game I didn't even realize, which, like I said, is very soda drinker pro because, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, I, I'm, it's really cool. So I think people are going to like that. I think people are going to like all of them though. Yeah, I hope so. I'm, it's weird to me coming off of doing Dusk, which was very, you know, uh, very heavily developed with like fans playing it and new blood QA playing it and doing a lot of iteration and feedback and stuff. It's weird to then go to doing this where it's like, there's really no time for that. You make the thing and maybe, you know, you have one day for people to play it and then you're done. So I'm like, well, I hope people enjoy this. Yeah. Your QA was basically me messaging you over discord about like the couple of times I found. I got it. I got it to the New Blood guys, and they played it like a day late, so I had to do a patch after the seven days because, of course, they did. Yeah. But that's basically the only feedback I've gotten so far. So. 
Yeah. yeah. And if anyone out there is worried that these games won't be like fixed if there's bugs, we still are allowing for patching after the seven yeah. days. This is a video game. Like these patches come. It's fine. <laughs> this yeah. is a video game in 2020. You you release the game and then you fix it. <laughs> no, I'm I'm kidding. The the games are pretty fixed as they are right now. It's, um, but anyways, uh, David, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. And um, I I really look forward to seeing you know what the future lies. For uh, the Pony Factory, hopefully this sells a million copies, and uh, that'd be cool. You know, yeah. we can see more of a future in in that. So, um, uh, and then to all of you listening at home, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for joining in. Go ahead and click the link in the description to find out more about the DreadX collection. Uh, Steam page should be up around the time that this goes live. Uh, if it's not, then it'll be up in a couple days, and then we'll retroactively go back in and fix it likely by the time you're listening to this uh it'll be it'll be up so you'll be able to wish list the game there uh once again 10 developers 10 games only seven bucks they made them all in seven days uh and it's it's definitely something that i think if you want a lot of different horror games for you know seven bucks it's it's going to be a great value so thank you so much for tuning in uh we got a, a bunch of other really great guests coming up uh, we've, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, we interviewed, um, Kyle, who's Malik, who did the Outsiders game. Uh, that was our previous episode. And the episode before that, we had John of the Shred from the Scythe Dev team come on to talk about Carthank. Both of those episodes are great. Um, so yeah, just go ahead and, uh, keep on listening. And, uh, I'll see you guys soon with our next episode when we're interviewing, uh, whichever of the devs is not the busiest. So <laughs> anyways. <laughs> We'll see you guys soon, and uh, bye! <laughs> Big John! <laughs> yeah, that's me! <laughs> Big John! <laughs> yeah, that's me! Ha <laughs> ha, big John. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs>